You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. So as Michael said, we pastor a church in Vancouver. We've been doing that for about 17 years. I've been in vocational ministry for about uh, 27 years, and it feels like a huge privilege to help people discover God and walk in relational health. Those things are a big deal to me. Uh, let's jump into the material. This material, Transformations, is actually the product of my uh, doctoral dissertation. Studied a whole bunch of different materials on how to present the core elements of the Christian faith. And then this was, looked at all of those and then wrote this. It started as a 10-week course. It's now down to six weeks. So I'm, it only means I'm talking faster. Uh, there's going to be a lot of content in a short amount of time. It's why you have a book, so that you can review it. And it is a, you know, the print is smaller. The next version that you'll see is a little bit bigger, but I think it's all readable. Uh, there's a, I'm sure you've heard this definition of insanity uh, that's doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. And so my request to you is to let yourself uh, hear something new. It doesn't mean you have to check out the old, but you do, I encourage you to, uh, to have an open mind. There's a, a saying that I heard by a, a pastor called... Um, Uh, Stanley, what's his first name? Andy Stanley, thought of his, his father's name. Listen to this quote. I really like this quote. It says, Your beliefs and behaviors are perfectly designed to produce the life that you are presently experiencing. Your beliefs and behaviors are perfectly designed to produce the life you're presently experiencing. And so the only way to experience a different kind of life is to challenge our beliefs and behaviors and to see if there's a different way of living. The biggest problem with new ideas is our old ideas because they're familiar to us. I, uh, my father, I grew up with my father in, in, when I was six years old. He was diagnosed with MS. He died when I was 16. And so I have a certain picture of what a father is like. <clears throat> he worked hard, but I mostly helped him. Uh, he couldn't really walk, or at the end of his life, he couldn't really talk. And so I was there to help him. And it was a huge uh, transition for me to discover a Heavenly Father that I didn't help, but that he helped me. And more than that, he loved me and was, uh, had an, wanted an intimate relationship with me. My father didn't think like that, especially... Back in those days, parents just didn't think about those kinds of things. But it was hard to grab hold of another idea of father when I already had an existing idea. And so these are the challenges that you'll experience as we go through this course to say, I want to be able to hear something fresh uh, that's not some, just some new idea that somebody clever has thought of, but to really say, what does the Bible teach about who God is and what it means to follow him? So that's your invitation. Let's look at the notes. 
what's going to happen each week is somebody's going to teach a lesson, a lecture, and then you're going to get into small groups for a little bit and talk about those things. And then there's, heaven forbid, homework. Just when you thought, those of you who aren't students, just when you thought you were done with it, no, you're back. So uh, I really encourage you to go through the homework. And the primary reason why is that you'll be reading the Bible. So I don't want you just to listen to me or to some other lecturer and to take our word for it. I want you to be able to get into the Bible and see for yourself what the Bible is teaching and then base your convictions on that. And so I, I really encourage you to do that. Um, and then the next week, you'll talk about those things that you did in your homework as a bit of accountability. And so that'll be the, the process each week. You'll hear a lecture, small group, and then homework. All right? So looking at this week's lesson, we're going to be talking about something called source. I'll explain what that means as we go along. Transformations is, is meant to help you discover who God is and what it means to follow him. You'll get out of this course what you put into it. So as you attend every week, and I encourage you to attend every week, every week is really critical. There's no excess baggage. Um, attend every week, engage in the discussion, do your homework. You're really going to find it's beneficial. The journey begins by admitting our questions and needs. Any meaningful journey toward change begins with being honest. If we're in denial, if we don't want to be true about what we think or believe, it's going to be hard. But uh, I think that we have questions and we have legitimate needs. We might have questions about the trustworthiness of the Bible. Uh, some people say that the Bible supports slavery, sexism, racism, homophobia, genocide. Some people say that it's full of internal contradictions and scientific and historical inaccuracies. They say that the biblical authors are biased or primitive in their understanding, that we've kind of progressed beyond such an old document. Some people think that the Bible has been corrupted over time and the Bible that we have today isn't really, you know, what uh, Jesus would have written 2,000 years ago. Some people also question the character of God. We question the trustworthiness of the Bible. We also question the character of God. From injustice to hell to our own pain, we ask, is God truly good and is he really powerful? And I don't know how many times somebody has asked me, how can a good God allow children to be starving in some faraway country and the injustice that we experience. Uh, how can a good God tolerate that? We're going to unpack all of those things. And uh, those are valid questions that need to be answered. We also can have questions about the integrity of Christians. Let me read you a quote, and you can guess who said this quote. In boundless love as a Christian... I read the passage which tells us how the Lord, at, his, at last, rose in his might and seized the scourge, the, the whip, to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and adders. As a Christian, I also have this duty to my own people. So that was Hitler in uh, 1922. In boundless love as a Christian. So what people do in the name of Christianity is horrific. There's no other word for it. It's horrible what people have done. The supposed holy wars or religious wars 
it's, uh, it's unspeakable, and I would venture to say uh, contradict the teachings of the Bible. They don't support it at all. But people often need something bigger than themselves to justify what they're doing, and so they use the Bible. But nevertheless, this is, we question the Bible's trustworthiness, the character of God, the integrity of Christians. But deeper than intellectual questions, we also have personal needs. We ultimately need, and I would venture to say that everybody on the face of the planet needs two things, security and significance. We all need to be unconditionally loved and accepted just the way we are, and we need to have meaning and purpose. I have never met anybody that says, I don't want to be loved, and uh, I would like an irrelevant life. I have never met anybody who said that. Uh, everybody wants to do something meaningful, uh, every, unless you're going on holidays. But uh, everybody wants that. Everybody wants to be loved and accepted. Our desire to satisfy these needs, I think, motivate most all we do. It determines what career we choose, the friends that we have, the friends that we don't want to have, the church that we would or wouldn't belong to, um, who we would marry, the God that we would worship. All of these things are motivated by wanting to be unconditionally loved and accepted and do something that really matters with our lives. So how do our questions and needs get answered? It begins with finding, and this is the big moment, it begins with finding the right source. We all have questions and we all have needs. The way that we're going to get those needs and questions answered is by finding a qualified source. The big phrase is source precedes content. <clears throat> source always precedes content. Uh, if you're in the court of law and uh, there's, a, there's a judge, well, what is the lawyer going to try to do to convince the judge? Well, if he can undermine someone's credibility, then it doesn't matter what comes out of their mouth is dismissed, right? So we know that the person who says it is more important than what's being said. Journalism is the same idea. Is all, people have all kinds of ideas, but if you want a good story, you need a good source. And if you can't prove that source, then you can't say that content. Source is always more important than content. Always. And so, uh, I think that the question that needs to be asked is, what is your source for what you believe? Um, just even thinking of simple things about it. I don't go to my dentist when my sink is clogged. And if I have a toothache, I don't ask my plumber about it. I find a better source. So, uh, while the number of questions that we have is endless, the number of sources is limited to three. So we're going to look at these three sources of potential content that can change our lives. The first is human. This is the most popular. The most popular person to trust in is yourself. Far and away, the God of this age, they say that you know, there's spiritual people and then unspiritual people. That's absolutely not true. Everyone is spiritual and everyone believes, worships someone or something. And the most popular person to worship is yourself. And uh, we trust ourselves most of all. Uh, but whether we trust in experts, family, prophets, or ourselves, people are the most common source of truth and love. The problem is, and there's only three, 
where number one is we're ignorant. The reality is we're mostly guessing. What's worse is that we don't know what we don't know. A little unsettling. Uh, take a look at that circle you'll see in your notes. It's called the circle of all knowledge. What I'd like you to do is to fill in that circle. If there's everything that could possibly be known, if you can just fill in the circle how much you know. And I always encourage people to use a fine tip pen. Uh, uh, we just don't know much. I'm, I'm 56 years old now, and it's impressive to me how little I know. And the older I get, it feels like the less I know. And lots of you have, you know, you, you specialize in some area of study, and I just know nothing about what you know. You know way more than me. And as I love meeting with people who know stuff. I go, wow, I've never heard of those things ever before. Uh, we just barely know anything, hey? Isn't that true? Just barely know stuff. Did you know that I'm a Christian not because I know a bunch of things, it's because I don't know a bunch of things and I needed to find somebody who does. I'm a Christian not because I'm smart, but because I'm stupid. And I needed to find someone smart enough to lead my life. So, number one is we're ignorant. Number two is we're sinful. Just here to encourage you today. You feel good about yourself and work on your self-esteem. Number two is that we're sinful. Our past confirms that we do wrong things all the time. Right? Please admit that. We do wrong, at least as a child you did. I know you've been perfected since then. But for sure, we all do wrong things all the time. And even our good deeds have mixed motives. When you're nice to your boss, you know, really? <laughs> like just for his benefit or hers? I don't know about that. Uh, we have mixed motives. And so none of us is holy or perfectly righteous. And so what that means is that our ideas often support our brokenness. And it doesn't make sense to build our life on our ideas that are kind of biased toward justifying ourselves. And finally, we're powerless. Other than that, we're great folk, but we're ignorant, sinful, and powerless. We can't control the past, the economy, although people try. We can't control people or even ourselves, which is perhaps the most frustrating of all. And we especially can't control what happens after we die. You can't control that. It's out of your hands. It's no wonder people hope for reincarnation or, or hope that when they die, everything ends because the feeling of a, that level of loss of control is overwhelming for people. And so they'd rather wish for nothing than wish to be in the hands of uh, someone else to determine their fate. So, no, so number one is we try to trust in humans, but I'm suggesting that we're not the best source of truth, power, or love. The second thing that we might try to trust in is things. Well, people can bring pain, which is, I think, all of our experience. Impersonal things leave us cold. Ideas don't care about us. Have you noticed that? Ideas don't snuggle with you. <laughs> They're just cold. Uh, money can't buy love, although people try. And pets can't save our souls. Uh, for sure, my dog can't. <laughs> We call our dog a rug, because uh, he mostly just lies there. 
We say that he would bark and bite, but that's just a lot of work. So, so he, he'll never bite you. He just mostly lies there. He's not going to save my soul. I was, in, uh, I was in Montreal. I don't know if you've been to Montreal before. But I, uh, sorry, Montreal. I mean, New York. Been to, uh, I was in New York. And uh, been in, I've only been there a couple times. And I went to Central Park. And, uh, and there's a whole bunch of baby carriages. I thought, that's really interesting. I didn't think in Manhattan that there was a lot of young families. And so I looked in, you know, inside the baby carriage to see little, you know, whatever. And there's a dog in there. And have you, seen, have you been there? It's just amazing to me. They're all pushing. They're taking themselves out for a walk, I suppose. <laughs> but they're, uh, they're pushing little Fufu, you know, in there. <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking, good. But I don't think they have confidence that they can have, I don't know, children. <laughs> and so they're just hoping that little Fufu is going to fulfill their relational longings and needs. Good luck with that. Pets can't save our souls. Stuff gets old. And nature can be heartless. <clears throat> nature can be heartless. There's this one guy I know that says whenever he's going through a difficult time, uh, he goes to a particular tree. And I'm from Vancouver up on the North Shore. Really, really big tree, and he sits under the tree. That's good. The tree's nice. And uh, the tree doesn't, you know, talk to him. Or... He sits there, and he's hoping that if he can sit under the tree, that life is going to get better. I think that's really sad. It's the best solution that he could come up with to get help in his life when he's overwhelmed, is to sit under a tree. I think we can do better than that. Divine is the third one. We have human, we have things, and then we have divine. If people and things can't satisfy, from the thousands of Hindu gods to the one Muslim god, how can we choose a god that satisfies? The only one, and here's the bold statement, the only one who is worthy of our trust must be the source of truth, love, and power. Shockingly, this criterion reduces the options to just one. Now, I know that's a bold statement, and I'd like to support that statement with three reasons why I believe that Jesus Christ is the source of truth, the source of love, and the source of power. Number one is that he's the source of truth. Jesus does not just know truths, he is the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Uh, now, this is a remarkable thought that alone is transformational. Our pursuit of truth does not end with good facts. It ends with a person. Since truth is a... Well, let me just pause on that. Okay, if you value knowledge, uh, intellect, understanding, uh, that's outstanding. The remarkable idea that the Bible teaches about truth is that truth isn't the best set of facts. And so that when we read the Bible, we go, this is the best facts of all the other holy books. This is the, the best ones. Now that's true, but there's something more going on when we pursue truth. Truth, uh, the Bible is called true for one reason. 
because of its divine author. It's who wrote it makes it true. Um, when God says something, it's always true because he said it. So truth ends with a person, not with a set of facts. So if you want to know the truth, I would like to introduce you to Jesus Christ. He is the truth. He doesn't just know more than other people or beings. He, by the nature of who he is, he is the truth. Now, I find this tremendously comforting because my pursuit of truth doesn't end with sitting with a bunch of better facts. It's being close to the living God. My end of truth is found in the comfort of a person, not in cold and heartless facts. He is the source of truth. It's where all right ideas originate from. We can echo those, of course, as we do study in the sciences. We can see what he made and find true things in that. But they point beyond themselves to a creator who is their source. Since truth is a person, it, back to the notes, it takes trust to know the truth, not just logic. Trust enables us to know God and rightly interpret his actions. Pascal is quoted as saying, the heart has reasons, has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of. If you, uh, I, I, there are people who are, um, I think they're called evidentialists or materialists that say that life can be reduced to what to your five senses. And if it's outside of that, then it's dismissed as being unreal. And uh, I always ask if they've been married or if they believe in beauty. Um, I think that people who reduce life to the five senses are reducing life to what they can control. I remember talking to an engineer, sorry if there's any engineers out here, he was saying, he was talking to me like this, and he just got married. And uh, he talked about having some struggles in his marriage. And I tried to connect the fact that he's heartless. <laughs> I said it way nicer than that. But that he's, he's you know, only five cents to a wife who says, do you love me? And do you know me? Not just facts about me, but do you see me? And had, he had no idea what she was talking about. His heart was so cold and so distant because he was terrified. He looked really strong and logical. Terrified to trust and be vulnerable, to be known and to know. You can't know the truth without trust, without vulnerability, because truth is ultimately a person. It's not just about logic. I've been married for a really long time, and uh, there's more going on in a relationship than logic. And if you simply live at that level, you're missing out on the spice of life. And I'm sorry. Jesus is truth. Jesus is Lord. 
Well, we all have had bad experiences with leaders. Jesus boldly says he is sovereign Lord. What an uncomfortable thing to say in Western society. Sovereign means he has no limitations, not time or space, ability or knowledge, people, powers or people. Jesus is never confused, afraid, or surprised. Jesus has never said, whoa. He's never said that. Whoa, I've never thought of that. He's never ever, wow. He's never had to do that. <laughs> he's, he's not surprised. He is almighty, thoroughly sovereign. Even when God limits himself, which is what we see on the earth, he does so out of his own free will. The only appropriate response to this kind of God is fear. I don't know if you've heard of a writer named C.S. Lewis. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, there's a Christ figure, Aslan, the lion. And this is what C.S. Lewis says about this Christ figure, Aslan. He says, he is not a tame lion. And uh, God is not tame. He can't be controlled. And we don't want him to be. And let me explain why that's true. But as our creator, he has the power to bless and curse, heal and hurt, save and destroy. If you are uh, breathing in right now, it's because God's letting you. That's a disturbing thought for people who find most comfort in control. But we're, we are far less in control than we like to think we are. And earthquakes and hurricanes remind us that we're maybe not as in control of our world or ourselves as we like to think we are. For this, re so, um, uh, for this reason, it is foolish to defy God. I really think it's foolish. It's like an ant shaking his little fist at a human. I rebel against you. I, uh, I was a woodwork teacher. So I've built lots of furniture over the years, desks and chairs and chest of drawers, all those kinds of things. And uh, I have, uh, I mean, this is weird. And I, anyways, I am the creator of furniture. Okay. I know it's super cool, right? I know you're not impressed. But I, I make furniture. Now, I am sovereign over all things that I create. So if there is a chair that says, you know, I hate being in a chair. People are sitting on me all the time and we don't want to go any farther than that, but it's not, it's not great. And I really, I really resent that. So I want to be a desk. I'm, I'm, I made you a chair. Now if that, you know, there's, I'm sovereign over that and there's nothing that a lighter or an ax can't solve. I'm sovereign. That is a super uncomfortable thought for human beings, that there is a God who's sovereign, who's almighty over you. Now, uh, as unsettling as it might be to know that God, I'm back in your notes, that God is all-powerful, it is what we need him to be. Anything less leaves us vulnerable and unprotected. Now, imagine if you chose the second biggest God to be your God. The second biggest one. That's quite high up the list. What's the biggest God going to do to your God? He's going to beat your God. And now what do you got? You're vulnerable 
and unprotected. I want to serve the largest, biggest God possible so that I can be safe and protected. I need him to be big. Now, for most of us, we are our own gods. We think that's the safest person to worship is ourselves because we think that we love ourselves best, which I beg to differ. You'll discover that in the coming weeks. But um, we think that we're, we, we are best for ourselves. Now, where do you think you rank on the list of all powerful gods? Where do you stack? Where are you in that list? Maybe this is why evil powers ravage us, why we feel hopeless and meaningless and powerless because we're not big enough to be the Lord of our lives. Maybe that's what's going on. Rather than treat God as smaller or more manageable, it is better to admit he is king and live on the right side of his power. I, uh, when I was younger, I became a Christian when I was 11 years old, but I had, uh, well, I had uh, a number of vices, but the most visible was I loved speeding. I just really liked driving my car fast. And uh, what really upset me about the police is they didn't understand and appreciate my driving abilities. I just think that's rude and insensitive of them. And if they really knew how good I was behind the wheel, they wouldn't have given me nearly as many tickets nor taken away my license um, when I was in my early 20s. It's just I feel so misunderstood, you guys. So I, uh, I hated the police. I just hated them. I didn't like what they stood for, and uh, they weren't nice to me. They didn't get my motives. Um, so then uh, flash forward a few years, and we, my wife and I, we've been married, as I said, for 32 years. Only three of those years have we ever lived alone. We've always had people living with us. One of the people that we had living with us is somebody who lived in the streets for a number of years. And uh, we invited him into our home. And he lived with us for about a year. And we got him back a, a job and gave him our car and all kinds of things. Well, the first uh, paycheck that he got, uh, we thought it was into cocaine. It turns out he was into heroin. He shot up, I think, 13 times the first time he got a paycheck. and. Uh, we, he's, he's home, we come home, and our house looks like it's been ransacked. There's a dent in the fridge, and things are overturned and smashed, and it looked like we'd been broken into. And so I, and I don't know if anybody's home, so I holler out his name, I ask if he's home, and he comes out of his room wired. I mean, you can, his face, you know, if you've ever seen, or you've ever been, <laughs> I mean, it's just wild. And it's like, sorry, you know, go back to sleep. It's all good, but it was too late. And so he's just right in your face, challenging you. And I, he, we had another guy living with us, and he put him up against a wall. I was starting to get violent. And I did what any manly man would do. I ran outside with my family and phoned 911. <laughs> just, would you please come and help me? And so the police came and dealt with the situation. In that moment, I loved the police. I loved them. 
They were so great. You see, the problem is not the police's power. I just need to live on the right side of that power. So if you want to be rebellious and do whatever you want, you're going to hate God. You really are. But if you need to be loved and protected and safe, then you're going to appreciate his power. Power is not the problem. It's what side of the power that we live on is the issue. We need God to be powerful. That's number two. So he's truth, he's Lord, and number three, he's love. If Jesus were only powerful, we'd all be in a lot of trouble, right? If he just is... If he just has attitude, we would be in a lot of trouble. Fortunately, he is also pure love. In fact, God's thoughts and actions define what love is. God is love. Now, what does love mean? I'll just give you a very simple definition. It's not in your notes. He's totally selfless. God is selfless. The opposite of love is not hate. It's selfishness. Love and hate can coexist. If you really love something, you might hate something, right? If I love my children, I hate when they do something harmful to themselves or others. You can, love and hate can coexist. Love and selfishness cannot. And God is thoroughly selfless. He's the only being that is. Everyone else has mixed motives. Love isn't one of his qualities. It's all that he is. And it's the only thing that motivates him. So, uh, what I, uh, so, there's not some random definition of love and then God best fits that. It's you look at God and that's how you find out what love is. He is love and he is the source of love. Now, follow me on this because this is going to be very, very helpful for you to make sense of the world, all right? I'm going to solve all the world's problems in the next five minutes. God's love is compromised, compromised, comprised, and it's in your notes, of mercy and justice. Those are the two qualities of God's love. He's merciful and he's just. His justice cares for victims. You know, if you're a victim, you want justice, you get that? And his mercy offers love to criminals. And he governs the world with the perfect blend of these two qualities. Now, this is what people criticize God for. They want him to be more merciful or more just. So, when you are a victim and you feel oppressed or you see other victims, what do you cry out for? Justice. And so you say, in the world, I want more justice. I want the, the downtrodden, the people without a voice. I want them to be defended. I want their rights respected. You fight for justice. Now, uh, excellent. Now, if all that you fight for is justice, then you are not just a victim, you're actually a criminal. You do wrong things all the time. Should God begin with punishing you? Should he begin with you? Or those other bad people that aren't you? If justice was all that we were fighting for, I think we'd all be dead or judged or incarcerated or something by a holy God who has no imperfection. Ah, but we say, no, 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 no. I want mercy. Can't we all just get along and just have some global hug 
And, uh, and everybody will just lay down all of their opinions and all of their agendas and get rid of all world religions. Just imagine. And, uh, you know, there is no heaven. We can just all get together and just all accept one another. We want more mercy, more kindness. Have you ever seen that work? And again, you've just not been a parent if you imagine that. Okay, just get along. It'll be okay. Just get along. That will never happen, I promise you. I have 10 reasons why. <clears throat> okay, here's what's remarkable about God. Is he's leading the world in the perfect blend of mercy and justice. Any more justice, we all be dead. Any more mercy, it's already painful enough. You know, we don't need more freedom. That's why we have police and governments. and So... He is leading the world in kindness, giving us free will, and also having a certain level of justice so that we don't all kill each other. And his mercy and justice is designed to point itself beyond itself to a loving God who we need to ultimately rule this world. Right now this world has fallen, and it's fallen for a very good reason. It's called you and I. Uh, he gave us this world to rule in his name. We rebelled against him, and this world that we see is the product of our choices. If you'd like our choices to be removed, imagine the kind of world where you have no choice. It's just robotic. It's just, but it's horrible. And so he's leading the world in a way that gives you free will, that is kind and generous towards you. But there will be a judgment day, and we will all give account for our actions. The clearest demonstration of God's mercy and justice is Jesus, paying the price for our sins. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No other God has died for sins, paid the penalty, justice, paid the just penalty for our sin. No other God has done that. The best that I can see of any other God, I've read the Quran, and it's, uh, I'm in paradise, you're sinners, if you can figure out how to get to me, good luck with that. Only Jesus comes over to us and takes, takes, bears the cost of our sinfulness so that we can be no longer alienated from God but in right relationship with him. The God of the Bible is truth, is sovereignly powerful, and is pure love, demonstrated through the work of Jesus Christ. So let's conclude with this following Jesus is in your notes. The quality of our life is determined by the quality of its leadership. We know that this is true. Uh, the quality of a family is determined by the quality of the parents. The quality of a business, you need to look at that. That's why they fire you know, the CEOs or whatever, is because any corporation is led by a leader, and the quality of that leader determines how well the corporation goes. Same is true with the country. So if our ultimate trust is in a lover, a job, in our intellect, or an angry God, or material possessions, it goes on and on, we can expect 
to be anxious and sinful, insecure and insignificant. These are the natural symptoms of trusting in an inadequate life leader. Let me explain what sinfulness is. The church always talks about sinners and being sinful. Uh, sin is the natural result of following someone other than God, trusting in someone other than God. Because if I'm, um, Elena is going to be my God. She's just an amazing person. She has a wonderful smile. She's super smart and kind. And, uh, but eventually, she's going to let me down. Eventually, she will. And so now what am I going to do? Because you're not coming through for me. So now I need to steal a little bit. I need to satisfy my lustful desires a little bit. I need to puff myself up so I feel better about myself because you don't do that well enough. I'm going to sin. Sin is evidence of someone other than God leading your life because that other God was not adequate to satisfy your longings in healthy, um, uh, meaningful ways. And so you had to turn to managing your life in your own way and it typically is going to end up hurting other people. And I have evidence of this in my own home. Uh, and it's, it's, if, you, if you guys know about, maybe you've been in, the, uh, in care, as they say it, but been a foster child. Uh, when you have a leader who hasn't led you well in your formative years, there's just this seed of mistrust that you don't trust anybody else. And so then you try to get all of your needs met in your own power, and you end up abusing and hurting a lot of other people. That's what we're all like. It's just more evident in some. Therefore, humanity's core problem is a crisis of leadership. The leader of our lives in particular and our world in general isn't qualified. I, I, the, what I'm presenting to you today is that your core problem in your life is not because you're not smart or nice or... Uh, or a good background, or you don't have enough money. The number one problem in your life and in mine is a leadership problem. If you're leading your life, you're in trouble. And the only way to get out of leading your life is to find a better life leader, and his name is Jesus Christ. Since the quality of our lives, since our lives are a reflection of who we follow, in your notes, the only way to improve our lives is to follow a better God. Therefore, the most important question in life is, who is worthy to be my source of truth, love, and power? Only Jesus is worthy. No other God left heaven to be with us. No other God died for our sins and rose from the dead. And only Jesus uses his divine power to serve. Only he is truth, Lord, and Savior. So how do we trust Jesus? We follow him. That's what trust looks like. Regardless of whether you try to be good, call yourself a Christian, had a religious experience or heritage, or believe that Jesus was a good man, Christians follow Jesus. It's what the word Christian means. There's a saying, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Um, uh, Christians follow Jesus. That's what we do. We don't, we, nobody ever does it perfectly, but it's what it means to be a Christian. It's not that you prayed a prayer once, that's a good start, but we follow Jesus. Um, 
So don't call yourself a Christian. Could you do me a favor? Don't call yourself a Christian if you're unwilling to give him control because you're making him look bad and you're causing others to mistrust him because of your bad example. Don't be perfect. It's not going to happen anyways. But sincerity really matters. And so if you call yourself a Christian, seek to do what he says. Trust him by the, in the way that you live. The alternative is to be unplugged from the source of life. You can see this cartoon in your notes. I love this cartoon. This chain cannot bind me. I will no longer be a puppet for the powers that be. My fate is mine to control. Boink. Freedom. Oh, nuts. <laughs> That's what it means to be disconnected from God. This course is called Transformations, Not Minor Adjustments. Our life cannot be changed with a few tweaks. Our struggles are evidence that our life leader is unqualified. The choice is clear. This day I call heaven and hell as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. If that sounds legalistic to you, it's because you don't know God. I love to be led by my Father in heaven. I love it. I feel safe. I feel looked out for. I am helped every day of my life. And I don't feel alone. We can try to avoid this choice by hoping for a third option, like being sincere or believing in reincarnation or that all paths lead to the same source. But either we follow Jesus as Lord or we don't. Don't let the myriad of options distract you. So will you follow Jesus to the exclusion of all other options? Will you trust him as your, as your source of truth, love, and power? Will you let him define your thoughts and feelings? Choosing to follow Jesus is the best decision we can make, for as we do, our lives reflect his wisdom, his strength, and his ability. The more, moreover, we discover a relationship with God that makes the pleasures of this world a cheap alternative. When I was, I'll close with this, when I was, uh, I told you that my father died when I was 16 years old, and uh, what I used to get for about five or 10 years, for quite a long time, I used to get in the mail orphans and benefits checks, a check from the government because I was an orphan. I never thought of myself as an orphan because I still had a mom, but I, I think they sent me like 50 bucks or something. I don't know, what it was, maybe 20 bucks. It wasn't very, but a month. And so every month I would look and it would tell me that I was an orphan. And I'll tell you why I became a Christian. is because I was longing for a father. Uh, my father tried his best, really. He was a good man. He was really involved in the unions back then and fighting for the underdog, and he was well-respected in the community. He didn't really talk with me, but he, he tried. He tried to be a positive example, and I just needed more than that. And what has healed my soul more than anything else is a heavenly father whose advice and instruction to me is defined as true, who uses his power to care for me instead of control me. And his power is unlimited 
so I feel safe even after I die. I'm not afraid to die. Kind of looking forward to it. And he is pure love. His love toward me is not self-centered, it's selfless. And the ways that he leads me is absolutely remarkable. And I have intimacy with the living God. It's why I'm a Christian. Not because it's most logical, which it is, but it's because it satisfies my deepest longings to be loved and accepted and to have a life that matters, to be in relationship with the living God. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jvlmontreal.org.